Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Brett Grist, who's the exploration manager of Cornwall Resources, um, focusing on the Redmore tin, tungsten and copper mining project located in eastern, uh, eastern Cornwall, which is in the southwest of England, for those that are listening um, all around the world. Um, the, and the, the um, project, or Cornwall Resources, is owned by um, AIM-listed Strategic Minerals PLC. Um, Brett has a background in geology uh, with more than 20 years' experience in exploration, mining project development, and playing a leading role in projects across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, including um, taking projects from early stage exploration through feasibility and into development. Um, He also co-chairs the UK Mining Group of the Critical Minerals Association. So um, I'm sure uh, Brett will explain a little bit more about that later in the podcast. So that's welcome, Brett, to the, the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. So how are you doing, Brett? Uh, very well, Rob. It's Friday afternoon, a great time to be on. Um, and yeah, thanks very much for the invite. There's a lot going yeah. on here and look forward to talking about it. Yeah, and I appreciate your time as well. And I know um, I know you're you're busy at the moment as we were just speaking off air uh, before we started the recording. So um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. So if you can start us off, tell us a little bit about your background. So back when you, um, when you graduated and just... Uh, Give us an overview of obviously your career, your journey to, to where you are today. Well, I was really lucky, Rob. I grew up here in southwest England uh, on Dartmoor, which is a national park. It's a national park on top of a really large granite. I was always interested, you know, what, what's this granite and what are these old mines that I see around the edge of it? So I was, I was always kicking around those. And then I found out I could do that as a career. So I went off, studied that at the Royal School of Mines, Imperial College. I studied mining geology there. That was a fantastic course because it didn't just do basic geology. It also took you through things like mineral processing, mining, and even mineral economics. So things that I've used all the way through my career. Uh, but I finished there. And at that time, unlike now, uh, there was no work in the UK. So I jumped on a plane, went off to Western Australia, uh, got two job offers within a week, and actually went for a job on um, a mine in Coolgardie. That was owned by the then Herald Resources, and I had a fantastic year out there, uh, as well as getting excellent experience in near mine exploration. I managed to pick up a, an Australian private pilot's license, something I'd always wanted to do. Uh, then that finished, I had to leave Australia. My visa ran out, came back to the UK, did some consulting work with a, a company called ACA Howe in Portugal. That was on gold. And then got an invite to go over to West Africa with a company called Reunion Mining, Reunion were doing some really fantastic work all over Africa. They had an excellent team, some of whom I I maintained contact with until today. And uh, my first job with them was in Mali. Uh, So I was about 22 years old and I was parachuted into this remote bit of Western Mali. I had something like 120 local employees under me. We had a a big trenching program going, manual trenching, 
soil sampling, cutting limes through the bush, and then following that up with some RC drilling. After a year there, I went off to Ghana, where the union had the Joano Gold Project. That subsequently became a really large find um, and was sold to Redback and then Kinross um, as part of another deal, I think for several billion dollars, a, a very substantial project in combination with the other assets that that company had. After that, I went off to business school and then I got an invite to go and work in Yemen, of all places. Uh, I, had to, I think at the time I had to look up where Yemen was, so I pretty quickly learned where it was. That was initially in a project geologist role, but I spent a lot of my time interacting with the local community. And because of that, I then ended up as country manager and basically running the show. And we took that project from relatively early exploration. It was a lead zinc silver project uh, through to, um, well, basically through licensing. So they had a mining law, but that didn't actually say how you built a mine. So we had to create some more laws around that, get those passed through parliament. Yeah, these are things you don't get taught at uni, um, but as many of us in our industry are able to do, you adapt, you work out how to do it, you find good people to work with, and then you come to a uh, worked solution. So we managed to get a, a law passed through Parliament that actually enabled you to build a mine. Uh, we got that financed, started building it. Uh, I bought the mining fleet. Uh, we took on a, a pretty large workforce, maximised local employment. Um, there was a tradition at the time of basically paying people to stay at home that the oil companies had come up with. We weren't going to do that. Uh, we decided to actually pay local people to do an honest day's work. And they really appreciated that. Um, it did it did actually get reported on WikiLeaks at one point that, yeah, what's this mining company doing? Doing something different where they're not paying people to stay at home. They're expecting them to do work. Um, that was the sort of the, the strength of the feeling in some of the local um, security companies. I think the Belgian company that uh, misbriefed at the US uh, embassy at the time. But I'm convinced we did things the right way there. Unfortunately, uh, following the Arab Spring, things started getting a little bit sticky security-wise. So I decided it was time to leave Yemen. It's a real shame. I, I love the people there. Um, any of us who spend time in these countries build up some really good relationships with the people, a good understanding of the culture. Uh, culture goes further than language. Um, and yeah, yeah, it was quite sad to leave. But I moved on to uh, Eastern DRC for a bit of peace and quiet, working with a company called Casa Mining. And there I was CEO of the company. And we took a project, uh, the Masisi project, from a state where it only had a couple of holes in the ground through to being a 1.2 million ounce resource with some very clear signs of there being a great deal more there. Um, so, yeah, that, that was an exciting project. Again, similar challenges. Uh, that was a pretty hot area security-wise. I was quite well equipped for that, having worked in Yemen. Uh, but it, it's not about having lots of guns and barbed wire fences. In fact, in my view, the moment you start putting up big fences and things, you're physically putting barriers up against the community. You lose a lot of that uh, information flow that can actually avoid you having problems. So one might hear of some um, basically rebels in the region through the community. And through having that messaging, you'd be able to understand how to react. You'd keep all your people safe and there wouldn't be any issues. Whereas if you'd gone for the heavy approach, that's when things can get very wrong. It's, it's not the right way to do things in my view. If you've got to get that heavy, you probably shouldn't be there. Um, so I, I had that really interesting time, about four years uh, heading up that project in DRC. And uh, then I had to leave DRC for health reasons. Um, basically, I, I had a, a series of infections coming on, I knew something wasn't right. Um, I 
went to see the School of Tropical Medicine. And um, they even they couldn't quite work out what was going on. But eventually, I got diagnosed with uh, leukemia. Yeah, and I was gonna we were gonna um, I was gonna go into that um, after you finished uh, giving us a, a, a summary of your career because obviously that is something that's obviously affected your life at that particular time. Um, but obviously it didn't stop you. It hasn't seemed to have stopped you. And obviously a lot of positives have come, come from that. So um, I just wanted to, just wanted to, um, I wondered if you could cover, cover that. Obviously once you found out that you had, unfortunately you had uh, leukemia and that process, and then suddenly coming out of that to where you are today. Yeah. Well, the diagnosis was a complete shock. You know, I was expecting to have a tropical disease or something. As people working in these exciting countries, you know, I'd been shot at and I'd had malaria and things over the years. Um, you don't expect something like that. You think you're immortal. Um, but, yeah, you, you deal with it. Um, it was a, a tough time for me and for the family. Uh, I recovered from that. I did then, unfortunately, get ill again with the same thing. I had a relapse. Uh, fortunately, I was able to get a, a match of a stem cell donor. Uh, that was someone called David, who's a firefighter in Scotland. Uh, and so at this point, I have to give a, a pitch for uh, joining your local stem cell registry, especially to any of our uh, younger listeners. They love um, people in their 20s and 30s for this. Uh, in the UK, the best one to join for younger people is anthonynolan.org. If you sign up for one of those stem cell registries, you may save someone's life. And all that's involved is uh, basically giving a cheek swab. They get a little bit of DNA from that. And then if you're found to be a match for someone, the actual process of donating cells, uh, cells later on is often quite straightforward. Typically, they just um, hook you up to something like a um, sort of blood pump. Um, it's a bit like giving a, uh, just, just a blood donation. They filter out the cells they need from that and give those to the person whose who's life needs saving. So I was really fortunate. I went through a tough time through that, managed to get through the other side. I did see a lot of people who didn't, and that puts a real perspective on life. Um, yeah, we are all fortunate. We should make the most of the opportunities that are in front of us. And you know, looking back, do I regret going off and working in places like Congo? Not at all. You know, You never know what's around the corner. Make the most of whatever is in front of you. Um, having picked myself up from that, I did some charity work, uh, some fundraising. I, I'm a patient ambassador for blood cancer charity, uh, Blood Cancer UK. I was supposed to be going up Kilimanjaro for them with my donor to see what other work is out there. And I was thinking maybe I'd have to have a career change or something. I didn't fancy immediately going off to uh, Congo or somewhere again. And I was fortunate. I saw a job advertised exploring in East Cornwall. That was advertised by Cornwall Resources, the company I presently work for. I saw that um, just over four and a half years ago. And I was really fortunate. The guys there, they could have said, hey, you know, is, is this guy up to it? He's, he's been ill. Um, can he do it? Um, but they, they took a punt on me. And I like to think that really paid off. Um, yeah, hopefully, this, this is a message for other employers. If you've got someone who's, who's had a bit of a kicking, take a chance on them because they are going to be so motivated and they will really give their all. And that's certainly everything I've always intended to do in my work. Um, so, yeah, coming back on to sort of thread in terms of career path, uh, I joined Cornwall Resources uh, four and a half years ago. We've managed to put into place a 
a really excellent um, exploration program. At the time, people were wondering, yeah, are you guys really going to find anything in Cornwall? It's all been mined out, hasn't it? Uh, well, that's not the case. And we've put together a real world-class resource with a lot of exploration upside around it. Um, so we found 11.7 million tons of, um, or 11.7 million tons at a grade of 1.17% tin equipment, consisting of a combination of tin, tungsten, and copper, and with significant exploration upside around it. Um, you know, next steps on that are going to be to take it through to a pre-feasibility study. Maybe it'll grow further. Um, we've got substantial further exploration rights around it that we haven't explored actively until now. Um, and on that, as, as we may come on to in a moment, we've recently started some work under an initiative known as Deep Digital Cornwall. So it's a really exciting area to be working. We've had a lot of success, and I think there's a lot more to be found out there. Yes, certainly. Um, appreciate you um, obviously give us an overview of your uh, career and obviously um, the unfortunate circumstances that you found yourself in. But um, as you said, it, it has turned out well. So if anyone that's listening that is going through a particular difficult patch, um, I suppose just look positive moving forward um, because you just, like you said, you never know what's around the corner. Um, and it's a, it's a great story in a, um, appreciate you obviously sharing it with our audience. Um, so moving on, I wondered if you can um, give us an overview of Cornwall Resources. Like you said, you've been there for four years. Um, I wondered if you can just give us a little bit of a history um, since you started. Um, so our audience um, around the world is aware of what's happening in uh, Cornwall. Yeah, fantastic. So the Redmore project uh, is, is the main asset that Cornwall Resources have. Uh, it's an exploration project looking for an underground tin, tungsten, copper deposit. Uh, like most areas of Cornwall, there's a long history of mining in the area. You can go back to, for example, the 12th century, and there's evidence of stream tinning on surface. Incidentally, that, that stream tinning, when you look at it from the air, is very similar to, for example, some of the alluvial mining that you might see going on in DRC. I've, I've flown over some of those areas and thought, goodness me, yeah, those are, are so similar what's going on. Some techniques don't change. Um, and then we, we saw a more recent pre-industrial uh, series of mining. So this is when they started inventing steam engines that enabled you to do underground mining by dewatering. Uh, so there's fairly significant mining in the area of the project. The local village is known as Kelly Bray, near to the town of Callington. Uh, that mining was substantial enough to justify the opening of a railway line. It really gives a measure of how much was going on. And it's it's interesting going through some of the historical records from back then because it was real wild west stuff. You know, they, you had cholera epide epidemics and things coming through and wiping out populations of people. It must have been really tough conditions, um, but it was work. People needed work, and um, yeah, they, they bravely got on with this in, in the sort of noble tradition. But then yeah, everything stopped um, in about 1946, and. You know, Everyone thought, well, yeah, mining's finished there. Then in the 1980s, there was something called the Minerals Assistance Program. Uh, I think that was funded by the then Department of Trade and Industry. And that encouraged a lot of exploration across Southwest England. Unfortunately, that then stopped in 1985 due to the collapse in the international tin price. But the work that had been done, which included at Redmore the uh, discovery of a new type of deposit known as a sheeted vein system. Um, and that was adjacent to some of the more traditional loads or veins that the old timers had mined. 
that work still remained. And so once metal prices started recovering a little bit, an Australian company, New Age Exploration, started looking at what opportunities there were in Southwest England. They identified the Redmore opportunity. They worked out who had the mineral rights, which in England is not as simple as it should be. And those turned out to be held by a local scrapyard owner. Uh, who would have thought it? But any, anyway, they managed to come up with an agreement on that. And then they brought in joint venture partner, Strategic Minerals. We ran one phase of drilling funded by Strategic. That had excellent results. We then came along with a second phase of drilling. The grades then were even stronger. Uh, we're talking a very high grade deposit. And then on the strength of that, Strategic decided to buy out New Age Exploration. So that work has taken the 1980s work. It's uh, added a further, very roughly 14,000 meters of diamond drilling to that. And that's enabled us to come up with a current resource. And then on top of that, we've got the surrounding exploration license. That is highly prospective. Um, we've got, for example, a topographic feature, which lines up very nicely with the surface projection of what we now identify as the sheeted vein system. Uh, the sheeted vein system consists of about an 80 meter wide package of parallel quartz veins, heavily mineralized with tungsten in the form of dwarfite, uh, tin as cassiterite, and as a chunk of pile of ground. Um, but looking along that strike, there's an obvious feature. Uh, we've run some student projects in conjunction with Camborne School of Mines. Those identified some possible extensions of mineralization. And that's made us think, okay, well, what else is out there? So I don't think this is the end of the story. What it has led through to is We've been fortunate to be part of the Deep Digital Cornwall Initiative. That's a project being run by the University of Exeter, Camden School of Mines. Uh, we uh, are part of that. Uh, another industry partner is Cornish Lithium. Uh, we receive funding from the European Regional Development Funds, uh, administered through the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. And yeah, this is an example of getting some funding from the UK into mining. Uh, the work we're doing is using Redmore as a digital laboratory. And basically, we're getting a load of data that will enable us to see where the granite extends and where mineralization continues. We're doing this through a gravity survey. Um, so essentially, one can see where the granites are on either side. The granites are the sources of the mineralization. So you've got, for example, Dartmoor. Further west, you've got Bodmin Moor. There are a few uh, smaller granites that pop up along that chain. But what happens in between? The old timers came along, they mined in valleys, they identified mineralization in those, and those became mines. In between, though, no exploration was carried out. But this is where you get the paradox of uh, Southwest England being one of the most heavily mined, but least explored parts of the world. I just think it's totally mad. You know, I've, I've worked all over Africa, people have spent lots of money exploring, um, in some cases, moose pasture, as, as our North American friends might say. Uh, but here in the UK, very little proper in inverted commas exploration has been done. So this deep digital Cornwall work has enabled us to go back to grassroots, carry out some soil geochemistry, carry out some gravity work, and see what else is out there. The data we produce will be made open source once it's ready. Uh, it's the right thing to do with it being publicly funded. Um, but it will, of course, also be of interest to our company and hopefully to others. And yeah, our vision in terms of what this might then lead into. If we can show the business case around this, that by just operating in this way over, say, a 20 square kilometer new, in inverted commas, exploration area, um, if that works, 
then we can turn around to the UK government and say, why don't you consider a region-wide exploration programme? With the mineral rights system as it is in the UK, where typically people have got smaller packages, it's unlikely that an individual company would be able to carry out a big systematic exploration programme across the whole region. But wouldn't it be great if the UK government, um, perhaps post-Brexit, decide, hey, let's get in here, let's create a mining industry, let's produce metals on our home soil to supply this new green industrial revolution that everyone's talking about? Well, fingers crossed. We can only uh, hope. Well, I suppose we don't necessarily need to hope. I suppose we need to just keep moving forward and and putting put use feed out there and obviously keep lobbying the government to um, to sort of invest in the area, which they obviously have started. Um, but obviously that needs to that needs to continue and, and, and for them to understand that there is a short supply of these metals and commodities well globally um, and we have a sufficient amount down there. Um, so yeah. I suppose it's just just keep lobbying the, the government and um, producing results that you, you, you've been producing so far. Yeah, and, and that's where we've got together with other companies um, as part of the Critical Minerals Association. Your voice as an individual company is, is easily lost, but together we can be much stronger. We can have a, a really significant impact in saying, look, government, there is a solution out there. You want to obtain these metals. You don't necessarily want to be reliant on some of the more traditional countries for supply of the metals. We've got them on our doorstep. This is the solution. This is how we can do it. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, mentioned the Campbell Score Mines. How has uh, how has your relationship been with them, and what else have they been providing um, you yourselves and other companies in the area? Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, I was previously working in DRC. Uh, contrasting DRC versus Cornwall, obviously they're, they're very different locations. Um, but one of the advantages of being in Cornwall is we have, you know, beyond the excellent mineral potential, we have excellent skills on our doorstep. We've got a, a stream of students being produced by the university, excellent people. I mentioned Campbell School of Mines, there's also the University of Plymouth close by. We've had enormous success recruiting from both universities. Uh, we've, you know, it's always a pleasure to be able to give people that vital first job in the industry. We've had people join us and then go on and uh, join Glencore, for example. It's just getting people that start, adding some value for them. In terms of other cooperations with the university, we, we probably run four or five different projects a year with the university. It's, it's a pleasure to work with them. And yes, as I mentioned, compared with being overseas where you're in a remote location, you don't have any of these facilities. This is a real advantage that we have in the domestic market. We've got that ability for valuable cooperation. And it's a two-way thing. The university really benefits from it. Um, and just recently, I was able to supply about 200 kilograms of material to uh, a university for one of the projects they're doing. Um, it, it works and should help generate really useful research and innovation that may feed back to the industry in time. Yeah, no, that's good to hear. Um, how is exploration um, across the UK at the moment? Um, and how do you see the future playing out? Obviously, we've just mentioned about, uh, obviously, Cornwall and, we've got, and obviously um, 
encouraging the government to continue investing in the area. But how 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 would you sum up overall uh, the UK overall in terms of exploration and opportunities that are out there? I would say, Rob, it's the best it's been in 35 years. It's really a, a fantastic time to be in it. Uh, if there are people perhaps working overseas, thinking they'd like to come back to the UK or to move to the UK, uh, now could be a good time to do it. There's something like 10 companies working in the metal space in the UK. Um, yeah, there are still some headwinds in terms of the government is not necessarily as joined up as it could be on uh, developing metals projects. And that's something within the Critical Minerals Association we're trying to work on. But it's a fantastic place to work. Uh, there's a lot going on. There are some significant sums of money being raised. Uh, there have been a number of, uh, well, there has been uh, a recent uh, IPO that was successful. Um, you've got people such as Tungsten West, very close to us. Uh, I know you recently had Max Denning on, a, a very interest, interesting interview. What we need is a, is a uh, success story. Deliver one of those, and we're going to see one positive one very soon. That will then be the evidence that the government need to really get behind the industry and make things happen. Yeah. So good time to be here. Um, what challenges do you see ahead within the mining industry here in the UK? Um, obviously, if government gets on our side, um, like you said, uh, the Campbell School Mines are producing some good, good students and good graduates. What what would you say are the major challenges over the next three to five years uh, and possibly beyond? The biggest challenges are in terms of getting started, really. In a, in a typical country, you'll go in, you'll, you'll perhaps meet the mines department, you'll get access to historical data, you'll come in, you'll pick up your mineral rights, uh, you have a, a clear license with them, perhaps going prospecting license, exploration license, then converting that through to a mining license maybe with some relinquishments along the way. It doesn't work like that in the UK. You have to spend a lot of time, first of all, working out legally who has the mineral rights. This can be quite fragmented, so it's quite a specialised task. It's possible, and the companies who are operating here have been very effective in achieving that, but it is effectively a barrier to entry that maybe shouldn't be there. So that could be streamlined. Beyond that, uh, the government is not um, particularly effective at enabling the mining industry. You have to deal with many different departments. There's no individual mines minister. We're fortunate in Cornwall in that uh, the council, who are the uh, planning authority responsible for giving planning permission for development of the project, are generally supportive of metals. But it's not as easy as it could or should be. And so, again, that's one of the things the critical minister association to try to address. But equally, looking at the long term, you know, 10, 20 years perhaps, we've got the push for net zero. Well, this is the opportunity. Let's produce some metals closer to home. You reduce the shipping uh, involved in getting those to uh, the end market, which could potentially be one of these gigafactories that the UK government are, are talking about at the moment. Um, yeah, so that's the opportunity. We've got high-grade material close to home. Does it make more sense to be mining all our copper from a low-grade porphyry somewhere and perhaps just offshoring the CO2 emissions and not worrying too much about them? Or should we actually do something in our backyard where we've got some high-grade tin, copper, tungsten? Let's try extracting that. If you're mining at maybe 10 times the grade of a lower-grade deposit, then it's likely 
that because you're uh, grinding up a much smaller amount of material, you're going to be generating an awful lot less in the way of emissions. May not be net zero straight away, although there are opportunities, for example, if you introduce uh, geothermal or, or wind power energy, which the UK is making excellent progress in. Um, but it, yeah, this is something that could help address our future needs. Um, it could improve security of supply for the UK. We don't know what trade wars we may have in the future. And um, it would help address that issue from society of can we produce the metals we all need for our cars, for our phones, in a more sustainable way. But you know, part of that is having an honest conversation with society. And that's not perhaps something that uh, the minerals industry has been very good at in the past. You know, we, we've talked in the past of a social license to operate. Um, one of the first things I do in exploration going into an area is to take the time to understand who are the, who are the key actors in a local area? Who do we need to know? Um, establishing communication pathways, hearing what people's concerns are. The concerns might be valid. They might be some misapprehension that can easily be addressed. But you've got to have that communication going, whether it's Yemen, Congo, Cornwall, or anywhere else. If you've got that happening and you haven't got big fences up, then you can solve a lot of the problems. So that can solve the local social license to operate. But then you've got the national and international social license to operate. Do people view mining as something they want to study at university? This is a bit of a problem for the industry. We need to show mining as a necessity for, for modern society. And people like the Critical Minerals Association pay a lot of uh, attention to that. Uh, they, yeah, they've got particular work happening on communication of the importance of mining, relevance to society. But it's something we can all be doing and all need to be doing. We need to get out there, talk to schools, talk to other people, and just get the general narrative away from mining is bad to, well, mining is needed. If we get the right people into it, people who care, then we can do it in the right way, and we will do it the right way. Yeah. Um, talking about um, ESG and focusing back on Cornwall, how is the, the local communities, um, I suppose, reacting to some of the things that are happening in the mining industry in that area? Um, obviously, you're going to have little pockets of different uh, communities. How are, they, how are they responding to some of the news that is coming out? Generally, it's very, very positive. Uh, Cornwall, in a number of areas, is quite economically deprived and people want employment. But it's, it can't be employment at any cost. It's got to be employment from an industry created in the right way. But as with any country, yeah, it's not homogenous. You need to understand the nature of the local area you're in. If it's an area with a, a lot of retired people that's highly scenic, an area of outstanding natural beauty, it's going to be more challenging than perhaps a brownfield site. The area we're in is semi-brownfield. Um, we are helped by the fact that our potential mine is going to be underground. Uh, so that's what we're planning on. That means, for example, that uh, access uh, from the mine to the processing plants will be by a decline, uh, leading through to the processing plant being able to be located at quite some distance from the mineral deposits. So we minimise a lot of those uh, local um, impacts. Uh, at the same time, through our exploration, I think you can see in the uh, image behind me, um, that's what one of our drill sites looked like. So using appropriate materials, it's working in the right way with that local community. 
Uh, we could have you know, tried to get, I don't know, some sort of fiberglass casing around the um, drill rig. I'm not sure how that would effective would have been. The best solution for us actually turned out to be putting a big straw bale wall around the drill rig. Um, it's appropriate for the local environment we were in, and it worked really well. We, we had no complaints at all through um, any of our two programs of drilling. So anywhere in the world that you are, it's, it's a question of adapting, using the appropriate measures, and in doing so, right from the start, you can make sure you have no impacts or, or very limited impacts on your host community. Yeah. And obviously, with mining picking up in the area of, uh, of Cornwall, have you seen a surge of people that know nothing about mining that suddenly gained an interest in, in, in what is happening and taken that further? Um, I suppose... A lot of people, if you look, if, I suppose it's all people around the world, whether they're in the UK or any other country, um, my, if mining isn't a main industry like it is, say, in Australia, um, people don't know what mining actually stands for and what it actually means to us building a future and, and, and I suppose, moving forward as a, as a, um, as a community. Do, have you seen people come out of the woodwork that know nothing about mining that has suddenly taken an interest and and have you done anything to persuade them to to encourage them to learn more there there are a number of gaps in terms of people's understanding of mining's relevance um i think a lot of it even comes back to the 1980s in the uk where mining was seen as bad we had coal mining um the, the strikes uh, wars with thatcher and so on um, so then we need to move forward to modern mining, which is a different thing. Um, far fewer impacts than people might imagine and is a necessity to, to society. So we've got to get that message out. I think there, there is interest. Um, what's particularly encouraging is that a growing number of um, ladies at school in particular, through things like women in mining, are getting involved at my daughter's school. They've, they've got a, a geology group and then they... Uh, um, do try and send quite a lot of people off to study geology at university. Um, so there's a small number of people getting interested as a result of what they hear, but it's not as many as we need. I think the other aspect as well is people tend to head straight for geology. Um, we need geology is important. I'm a geologist, but um, we need more than geology. Yeah, we need mining engineers. We need mineral processing. We, you know, we did hear of Camborne actually. Um, shutting down some of its courses. Um, that was a retrograde step that many of us were very concerned at. Again, you know, if the UK government is keen on establishing a metal sector here, we need to see we've, that we've got a full through of um, graduates in mineral processing, mining engineering, as well as the traditional geology route. Let's get those people in, let's create the opportunities here, and let's build a really healthy domestic mining sector. Yeah, and I, and I think again by talking by talking a lot about some of these issues, and obviously where you are in Cornwall, informing more of the public what what you're doing, and just keeping them up to date, and again just reinforcing what mining actually is. And I suppose if many of us do that, the message will will get out there as far as it can. So um, obviously you guys are doing a uh, some good work down there. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about um, the Critical Minerals Association that you co-chair. Yeah, so the Critical Minerals Association is formed of a number of uh, companies with interests in 
metals production, the uh, circular economy, uh, recycling, um, typically people with a UK uh, connection. So they might have exploration or production onshore in the UK. They might be based out of here with work overseas. And together, we work with the government to make sure that the, the voice of the domestic metal sector is heard. Um, industries such as aggregates and quarrying are reasonably well heard in the UK. But the paradox is because we don't yet have a metals industry, it's not heard by government, it's not represented. So we had to step in and do something about it. And we've been pretty effective in that. Um, there is a uh, House of Commons committee uh, that looks at uh, critical minerals. Um, we need more action from this. We would like to see uh, Bayes, that's effectively the Department of Industry, taking more of an interest in the sector. We would like to see a junior minister for mining at some stage, someone who can almost be a one-stop shop and enable things to be more connected. Um, but the Critical Minerals Association, I've been active with them for coming up to two years. Uh, it's been tremendous what we've achieved so far. And it does really epitomize the fact that you're far stronger together than all trying to do something individually. Yeah. So maybe someone that is listening, that is in the mining industry, whether they've recently graduated or have some years of experience behind you, maybe if you want to um, become a, a member of parliament and um, and I suppose stick up for the cause of, of mining, then um, if anyone is listening, then maybe uh, maybe it's not, it could be another career path that you could go down. And, and obviously it could enhance enhance the mining industry if you if you feel that is the, the direction that um, you want to go in. Absolutely. And I think it has to be said there are some MPs, particularly from Cornwall, who are already heavily backing the uh, de development of the sector, but we need more support. Um, we've, we've got to keep working at this, uh, but we'll get there. It's the right time for it. Yeah, certainly. Um, and as a con uh, conclusion, I just wonder if you can give us a, an outlook of or for Cornwall Resources um, over the short and medium term, and also an overview of the Cornwall region um, and what what you're going to see developing um, across across I suppose across Cornwall over the next say three to five years. So uh, Cornwall Resources, uh, we are currently focused on the Deep Digital Cornwall projects. Um, that's got fieldwork going on through to about January next year. Uh, following that will be uh, processing the data, and that should come up with some really uh, interesting conclusions. Uh, later on, we're aiming at obviously progressing the resource further. That's likely to lead through to a pre-feasibility study. Uh, I can't, can't go into timescales on this call. Um, obviously, we work very closely with our parent company, Strategic Minerals PLC. Um, they are also developing uh, the Lee Creek Copper Project in South Australia. So they, they've got a good chain of projects going. In terms of Cornwall more widely, um, there's a great deal going on. Um, so you've got companies such as Cornish Lithium, British Lithium working in the lithium space. Uh, you've got um, Cornish Metals, the former or formerly known as the Strongbow, um, with the South Crofty project. Um, we there are a number of other companies looking at coming to market as well. Um, and then, of course, uh, just across the border, you've got Tungsten West with the Hemadon deposit. 
there's an awful lot going on in quite a small geographic area. Um, we should see some production achieved in the relatively near future. And yeah, across the explorers, hopefully some of those exploration projects are going to convert into development projects relatively soon as well. And obviously at Cornwall Resources, we're hopeful that ours will be one of those. The signs are very positive. We've got a very substantial resource. We think that's going to grow significantly. Our resource grade is, is high. Um, and if you've got grade, you know, that's, that's a good way to getting there. Yeah, it sounds uh, certainly sounds uh, an interesting and exciting sort of future for, for the area, which I think is, is really needed, um, not just for the area, but also for the UK mining industry, which obviously has sort of died away over the last X, well, three or four decades, um, obviously since uh, coal was, was around here. Um, so, yeah, appreciate, appreciate you coming onto the podcast and uh, give us an overview of, of the area. Um, so if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, um, how can they go about doing that? Are you across any sort of social media platforms as well? Sure. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So if they want to look up my name, Brett Grist on LinkedIn, they'll find me there. Uh, you can take a, a look at our website, uh, which is cornwallresources.com. Um, and uh, if you wanted to email me, just email info at cornwallresources.com. And we'll be pleased to get back to you. Yeah, and we can include those in the show notes accompanying this podcast. So um, really appreciate your time, Brett, telling us uh, your story, telling us uh, the overview of what's happening in uh, Cornwall. Um, audience, I appreciate you uh, listening to this episode. And as always, appreciate your support. Also, please um, share this episode with friends, family, um, especially if you're in the Cornwall region or even in the UK. Um, just so people become more aware of what mining is. Um, and those listening overseas, hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed um, listening to, to Brett and actually understanding that there is a mining industry here in the UK, although not as big as some other countries, but we are, we are slowly getting there and slowly building, building up um, momentum. So appreciate you all for listening. Keep sharing and liking the episodes whether you're listening to this on the YouTube channel and I appreciate if you can like and share below um, and please keep telling your friends and family about this podcast so it can reach all corners of the world. So really appreciate your time, Brett, again. And until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining!